Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Warren Farrell. Warren, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time and didn't anticipate years ago when I first read, the first book of yours that I read was uh, The Myth of Male Power. Mm -hmm. I recently read The Boy Crisis and I've read other things in between. I've certainly watched a lot of videos of yours and listened to you on other people's podcasts. And I'm going to share a little bit about how I came to you. I grew up equality, especially between the sexes, has always been important to me. And I remember thinking, can I call myself a feminist? I'm a guy. Does that make sense? And this was like high school, maybe college. And in college, I went to Columbia University undergrad. And by the way, I, I teach at NYU sometimes, and I know you are at NYU. And I remember going to Take Back the Night at Barnard across the street from Columbia's uh, main campus. And it was such a powerful experience. And I volunteered there for the next couple of years to help organize it because I felt it was such an important organization. Not organization, but event. And years later, I'm on the internet and I see a bunch of people who are criticizing feminism. And I feel like, what are they talking about? They, they clearly don't know what's up. And I decided to go look and see, like, I'm going to show, I'm going to go on some of these communities that are saying men are suffering and women are not and say, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to set you, set you guys straight. And so I go and start reading it. And a lot of it is, I don't quite identify with, but I kept reading your name. And this is probably 10 years ago. So I got the myth of male power and I thought, okay, this is where it's all coming from. I'm going to tear this down. And the more that I read it, the more things started falling into place that didn't quite make sense in my life and started to make more and more sense. I mean, some little ones, some things, when I turned 18, or I guess when I turned 17, the government emailed, or no, didn't email, that was, was before then, but mailed me a letter saying, by your next birthday, you must sign up for selective service. My sisters didn't get that, didn't get that letter. And there seemed something funny about that. And my sisters, especially my little sister, could complain to my parents and I could get in trouble. But if I complained to my parents, no one ever got in trouble. But the big one, which was a, a very difficult thing for me to face myself, was a friend of mine. We were one time having drinks together. And he said he was opening up more to me. And he, I'll just say what he said. He said that when he was 14 years old, he was raped by his teacher. And I said... I don't remember exactly what I said, but something like, oh, wow, that's cool. You got the teacher. That's awesome. And he said, no, it was horrible. And everyone reacts that way. And it's why I can't tell anyone this. It's very difficult for me to share. And these things were kind of rummaging. There's a lot more to that, but it was a very eye-opening experience for me. And when I read them at the male power, and one of the core ideas in it for me was, you know, men's facade of strength is their weakness. And women's facade of weakness is their strength things started falling into place that never fell in place before. And if I measure a book's greatness by how much it's changed my life, how much it's changed my, my viewpoint, that changed me a lot. And I've never stopped pursuing where that went. And so the boy crisis is one of the things that kept hitting me as I was reading. I, I, sorry if I'm going on too long. No, no, it's very, very fascinating to me. One of the things that hit me was that a lot of what you're saying was about boys, but I felt like a lot of it was really about our culture and I felt like you're framing things in a way of how to help boys, but it's also how to address a lack of empathy. You can say the rest probably better than I can. But right now, let's just say in universities, I think last I heard NYU was 60-40 female to male. And that's including the engineering school, which is mostly male. So, and that was recently acquired. So if I look at the New York campus, it's, I don't know, probably 75-25, maybe a little bit less. And still, I believe that they don't have scholarships. The scholarships are all to push more I teach leadership and there's a leadership meeting and of the various professors who taught leadership and NYU is so many under so many schools. It's like, they're all over and they might not know each other. So someone's bringing them together. And I just casually kept, and this was before, was it before? This was a while ago. Anyway, at none of those meetings was it 50, 50, the closest ratio was two to one female to male. And there was one that was six to one female to male. And they were still saying, how can we get more women in leadership? Now, faculty representation is different than student representation, and student representation is different than out in the world. And anyway, I've talked a bunch, partly because this is a, um, a conversation I've looked forward to for a long time. And I, in the business of changing people's viewpoints or giving people the opportunity to examine their own viewpoints, I wanted to bring you on as someone who's changed viewpoints. I think that's very important in the area of the environment, but also, so I've been talking for a long time. I'm curious how it sounds to you. And I, I, you've talked to a lot more people who've read your books than I've read, than I've talked to you. Is it common? Is it? Well, yeah. Well, the good news is that it is common and uh, that, that 
exactly the process that you went through. And it, it really was true for me as well. I was on the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City, as you know, and spoke all around the world on women's issues only. And I, although I started 300 some odd men's groups, you know, I was con- at the beginning of starting them, I was convincing, you know, trying, I was giving the men many, many lectures while they were expressing their feelings of what was going on and on the ideology of uh, women's uh, issues and the importance of feminism. It wasn't until I shut my own mouth and started listening to um, the men and so instead of giving them a lecture as from my feminist perspective, that I really began to hear uh, how many men, for example, when they had children, had given up jobs that they loved, like teaching in an elementary school. And then those jobs of teaching in the elementary school, they lost their passion when they uh, went to, and tried to become a principal or a or a superintendent of schools. And so they were just very you know, um, sad about that, but they knew that they wanted to, as a superintendent of schools or as a principal, that they could earn more money, even though they'd be working you know, about 70% more and they were doing things like administrative stuff that they hated, uh, as opposed to teaching in an elementary school, which they loved. And, um, and the similarly, other guys were into music and they gave up their music gigs when they became a dad. And they did something that was um, that just, you know, like maybe became a music teacher and then that didn't earn enough. So they became, they quit music altogether. And they all had, almost all the men in my men's groups had these hidden dreams of, of doing things like becoming an artist or I was becoming a writer. And they were envious of me that I was, you know, actually publishing books and things like that. And that was very um, sad to them. But they said it to nobody. And it was only once I shut my mouth and listened and and didn't wait for the moment to give them the feminist lecture that I really be, began to hear that there were, you know, that, that each of these men, all the dads in particular, every single dad, um, and this is, you know, at, uh, I was at, the, at this time, I was a assistant to the president of NYU and I was doing my doctorate at NYU. And so, and um, in one of one of my groups, I, as you may know, was joined by John Lennon, who went through a very similar process as well. And then I began to speak about that as part of my um, talks to organizations that were always organized by feminists. And the audiences were huge at that time because I was on TV all the time. So I decided to do things like do role reversal dates in men's beauty contests. I decided to do things to get men to understand women's role in the world and and, um, the pressures on them. So I would say things like women are in a beauty contest every day of their lives, whether they're attractive or unattractive, they experience themselves as winners or losers in that contest. And men, if you want to um, understand or walk a mile in women's moccasins, I'm going to ask you to come up here on stage or in the aisles and, you know, et cetera, and um, experience the beauty contest of everyday life that women um, go through and have the women be the judges in that beauty contest of everyday life. And, you know, men at the end of that process would say, wow, I'm so happy on one level to be one of the top six finalists in this, you know, 500 males in this audience. And I'm one of the top, uh, and I was competing for that every minute for the past hour. But now that I've gotten to be in the, among the top six, I'm feeling like, I've tried to put forth my beauty every moment or my good looks every moment and uh, put that forward. But now I'm feeling like, you know, I'm much more than this, this, you know, piece of ass, if you will, I'm much more than this, you know, this body. I I have values. I have integrity. I care about things. I have knowledge about issues and no one seemed to care about me at all on those levels. They were just um, focused on my body. And I feel in a way I sort of prostituted myself and um, I, you know, I feel caught between this rock and a hard place of responding to and competing to be chosen for my looks, and at the same time resenting that no one cares about any other part of me. And the women in the audience would just say, "Thank you, thank you." I really feel heard for the first time. Then I would reverse it and say, "This is a role reversal experience. That you're not the only one, as as women with experiences like this." And so I asked the women who were going to projected themselves to be the ones who would be earning uh, the most um, in five, six years after graduation or the teachers who are the other people, the adults uh, the uh, in the audience that were earning more. I asked them to sit in the front rows and then uh, escalated that all the way back to the people who are earning the least to sit in the back rows. And oftentimes the people who were expecting to earn the least were among the most attractive. And so the guys would start you know, sort of looking at them to, to be, um, and then the, the goal here was 
uh, the women would eventually have to ask out the guys on a role reversal date. They would have to take the uh, initiatives like hold their hand and uh, take them out to dinner and uh, maybe and give them at least a kiss on the cheek before they return them uh, 25, 30 minutes later to the stage. And the guys were sort of oftentimes flirting with the women in the back rows. And I re-educated the guys to uh, think of their roles as being reversed and that they would be likely to be the full-time uh, or you know mostly full-time uh, caretaker for the children and that they made it, needed to make sure that their children were uh, went to good schools and good neighborhoods, good homes, and so that they needed to focus on the women in the front rows that were going to be earning more than the women in the back rows. And this began to make the women in the back rows feel really antsy as opposed to, you know, I'm beautiful, that's all I need. And so finally, I'd get the women to ask the men out, and the women would come up, and I would uh, focus on letting the women know that their job was to ask out that you know that, that they make believe that they were addicted to the guys that were the best looking. So, you know, the top six guys got a lot of women um, competing for them, and the um, and even though a lot of women acknowledged later that they they didn't ask out any of the top six guys because they were afraid of being rejected. But among the women that did go to the top six guys, the stories came back like this. You know, up until now, I've always, whenever I've used the word jerk, it's always been my feelings about a particular man. Well, tonight, I was like one of 10 women asking this guy out that I was really attracted to. And I could see some of the other women were really um, catching his eye more than I was. So I, you know, finally edged my way in, pushing one of the other women aside and said, you know, um, I'd love to pick you up in my Porsche and take you to a restaurant that I'd never been to before, but I'd heard was really a neat restaurant. And um, and, and said that, you know, that I was, um, I, I had a job that I didn't really have. And so, I, and so I just totally was a jerk. But then I saw that, you know, it was down to about three of us out of the, you know, the eight or nine that were there originally. And I still didn't think I was going to get chosen. So I physically took the guy by the arm and pulled him away from uh, the other women that were competing to be with him. And, you know, if a guy had done that to me, I would really feel him to be, you know, like a harasser and a bully. And uh, but I here I did it without even knowing or thinking or feeling I was going to do that. And I tonight was really the jerk. And so it's given me this understanding that, you know, the person who's the jerk is really just oftentimes feeling like they're going to be rejected if they don't do something to stand out. And the guys would go, thank you. That's the way we feel all the time. And so these role reversal experiences were very uh, crucial. And for many years now, colleges won't uh, even invite me to do this um, on the college campus for two reasons. One is I'm expressing that um, I'm asking women to have a part of the male experience as well as men having part of the female experience. And that that portion is no longer allowed on campuses. It's all about uh, wokeness and trigger warnings and microaggressions and uh, safe spaces and things like that to protect women, which is really undermining women because people who seek constant protection and claim to be constant victims are never uh, respected and never trusted as much as people who aren't. And so that's a little bit of the, uh, you know, an example of how I evolved. And so I began to start seeing that, you know, things like hashtag me too. I was really glad that hashtag me too happened because I know a lot of women, my wife and my sister and uh, among them, that had some bad experiences with uh, with men uh, that they've sort of they haven't completely kept it to themselves, but I only knew a portion of it that I learned more of after hashtag me to sort of created an atmosphere for that. However, I also know from the hundreds of men's groups I started that men have the equivalent experiences on a, a, like the type I was just talking about, and that no men feel comfortable these days talking about their vulnerabilities. And so um, what we need is not a hashtag me too monologue, but a hashtag me too dialogue. And what we need is to learn how to listen and hear each other and make it safe for the other one to share their vulnerabilities rather than um, and becoming angry because we don't feel heard and becoming haters because we think the world is against us. We have to see that anger is vulnerability's mask. And when we see somebody express anger or hatred, that we know that we need to start asking, tell me about yourself. 
and we need to be listening, not interrupting, and being making sure that we um, allow the person who's talking and expressing vulnerabilities that maybe we even totally disagree with to just give them the space to not only be heard, but not to be argued with for a while, just to be have them know that we hear their best intent and their version of the world. When you described the role reversal situation, there's a part of me that felt like, I mean, I've heard that before, and there's videos of it, of um, you doing it like on TV. Yes, I and with um, um, on the Mike Douglas show with Alan Alda and the Fifth Dimension, and then also with Tony Robbins um, workshops. And part of me feels like, oh, now I understand something I didn't understand before. Now I really understand a lot more. But part of me also knows that that's like the first thread, whatever, you know, there's lots of little threads that if you pull the whole sweater comes undone. And there's, as you said, it's such a tiny little thing of such a huge change of once you, I feel like, I mean, that was decades ago that you started that. Yes. and. I suspect that you haven't stopped discovering more aspects of this in the whole time since. Absolutely. And, um, you know, the, the, you were talking before about your recognition when you turned 18 that you were getting, you know, draft registration messages and women weren't. And those draft registrations, by the way, when are still in place when males turn 18. So if you have a son that's about to turn 18, he will re- be required to register for the draft. But few people know is this is a number of fascinating things involved in that. One is that if he doesn't do that in 42 states, he won't even be able to get a driver's license. He will be fined up to a quarter million dollars. He can be kept in jail for, uh, I think it's a year or so. And he will have on his record that the fact that he uh, was in jail and that he was didn't register with the draft. He will therefore not be able to get a job. He won't be able to go to any university which gets federal funds. And that means practically every university, including the most private universities. And so this, uh, that all these things are the price that he will pay for acting like a female, not registering for the draft. And so he will be persona non grata to the federal government and have a record for not doing that. Now, that's fascinating in and of itself. What is more fascinating is that men are not objecting to that. Parents are not objecting to that. Feminist movements who are supposedly in favor of equality are not objecting to that. This is now going to be uh, looked at. Uh, this is now going to be a congressional bill, part of a, a big congressional bill that may or may not pass, or the, and that portion is not passed. But this, the Biden administration has asked the, the Supreme Court to not review that even though presumably the Biden administration's in favor of equality, not when it comes to asking women to take equal responsibility to register for the, the draft. And that could be worded in such a way that you don't have to register to be in combat. You just had to register to serve in one way or the other uh, should uh, the country be threatened or bombed or in some way um, we had another 9-11 and felt we needed to go to war. So the real crime here is the that men have learned so well that their role to be considered a man is to respond to each generation's war by being willing to be disposable, by having their, their to go to that, if Uncle Sam says, we need you, we sign up, we go into the Marines or what, what other service we go to, we risk our lives, we risk PTSD, uh, never being functional again. And um, we risk committing suicide at a much higher level than we'll be killed in, at, in the war. And the important thing about all of that is we say nothing about it because we are programmed to, um, when we feel something, to keep it to ourselves in order to be able to be the hero and be willing to die rather than, um, rather than say, I don't feel this is right. We intuitively know that women fall in love with the officer and the gentleman, not the private and the pacifist. We intuitively know that this is um, that that women fall in love with alpha men, not men who are whining. That whining men are losers, and that uh, complaining or speaking of your feelings in the society feels to most women, if you're an adult male, like um, fingernail scratching on a chalkboard. And so uh, these are the things that I've learned by actually listening to men, the things that normally men keep to themselves. Yeah, part of me is listening to this, and, and there's a big shift in values that I've gone through with the environment of, of how seeing our polluting ways as, it's, 
No one thinks of it that way. And, and there's a big value shift. And I want to go into that, but I, I can't help but go back, stay on this topic that the a few years ago, maybe a year or two ago in Central Park, there was a, a woman who was walking her dog and a man who asked her to put the dog on the leash. And it kind of, you're nodding and it kind of made the papers. So hopefully people know about this case. And she called the cops. The man was black, the woman was white. And every, all the reporting I saw of it was that it was a racist incident. Mm-hmm. And I did a post, I posted to my blog, yes, racism seems very clear. Also sexism. It looks like there's a sex, like I, I can't imagine if the sexes were switched, that it would play out the same way. And I generally have to bend over backward to say, yes, there's sexism. I mean, there's racism. Also this other thing, it's worth looking at. And I remember getting this one email back that this woman was just telling me, you don't understand what it's like to be a woman. And it's not, and, and just lecturing me. That's what it felt like to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm sure for herself, she was, I probably seemed ignorant to her and, and was helping me. So all the time you've been working, I think, I hope that there are a lot of people like me who, who feel more aware and more comfortable in, in my own skin. And, but also you face resistance, but I don't think it's like, I don't think they, I don't know. How would you describe, I mean, I think it would be great if the whole, if, if everyone read your stuff and digested it and contemplated it as, as I have, but I think a lot of people won't even go near it. Oh, I got to tell you another thing. When, after I read Myth and Power, I gave a copy to my girlfriend, now ex-girlfriend at the time. And after she read it, one of the things she said to me was a question. And she, you know, college graduate, later to become a physician's assistant, a woman of the world. And she asked me, do men have feelings? After she read the myth of male power? That's what led her to wonder, do men have feelings? Wow. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, I thought you guys just did stuff. Mm-hmm. And I thought of all the times... I felt hurt by her. And for however she came to where she had been in that, that point in her life, there's no way she could have hurt me. Yes, yes. And I told her, yes, we do have feelings. <laughs> so she wasn't resisting. She wouldn't have gone out and read the book on her own. It taught her something she didn't know before. So I'm, I'm thinking about like how, you've, you, how you're received uh, it's, and how it feels for you on your part to face, I don't know if it's resistance or opposition or how does it feel from your perspective? pushing against, is it, would you call it resistance or how would you, how you received? I'm really clear on these issues because uh, when I was in the board of now in New York city, I was asked, asked by, I was solicited by the New York times to write op-eds on, you know, on men's issues um, or, or sort of, or not on men's issues, but on the importance of the feminist movement actually. And my first two, and my, I overwrote the op-ed and so instead of cutting it back or telling me it was not acceptable because it was too long, they liked it so much, they made a two op-ed piece out of it, which is one of the first times they'd ever done that. And so, uh, and then when I wrote my next one, they published that. And my next one, they published that. And then after I started to integrate um, some of the issues of boys and men, had some compassion for boys and men, I started getting rejected. And the next 29 op-eds in a row were, uh, were as a result of rejection. And then on TV shows, the TV shows, Phil Donahue's show, which is a show you probably don't remember because you're too young. Uh, I do remember. You do remember. Okay. Yeah. Maybe just look young. And the, um, and that, you know, they, they had me on eight times and Oprah had me on many times during ratings periods and so on. And it was only the first time that I mentioned to Oprah uh, that, you know, that to uh, her um, executive assistant, actually, that gender issues were complex and, you know, men also had their issues. And I was being getting, re- they were ready to book me for a, for- a fourth time on the show. And the producer hesitated a little bit and said, oh, thank you, Dr. Farrell. That was very helpful to know. And then never called me back. And, you know, I'm politically incorrect. I was interviewed over and over again, pre-interviewed for the show and told later by the producer that after the show had stopped, that I was not a, a male chauvinist and they needed to have a male chauvinist oppose the, fe- the, the feminists on the show. And I was too gentle and too uh, convincing. They didn't want that type of political incorrectness. And the um, I was you no know, did a couple of articles for the AARP journal. Uh, did an article for them, and they asked me before the article was published to write another one for a younger audience. Within the they have two parts, uh, two audiences in uh, AARP, the uh, American Association of Retired People. That is, 
And so I did both uh, articles. They paid me for it, loved it. It was in the process of being published. And one low-level copy editor was a strong feminist and just put up such a tirade that the um, CEO got, it went all the way up to the CEO that got scared and just dropped my articles. No problem with the quality. They got, they, they didn't tell me they weren't going to pay me. They paid me, but they just were not willing to even take, they were fearful and they were cowed um, by that. And I can give you uh, hundreds of examples of that for me, but every single man that I know that had made um, a successful transition to understanding men's issues and had published something on that has experienced the same type of what I came to call a lace curtain of all the media just um, stepping away from them. And now uh, all the media that used to um, call me to have me on is they will not respond because I am talking about boys and men's issues with empathy, even though I am still a 100% supporter of what the, the positive part of women's liberation, which is expanding women's opportunities and options and listening to what women have to say. I'm just uh, 100% uh, opposed to uh, hashtag me to being a one-way street, a monologue rather than a dialogue. And I've been doing couples communication counseling for 30 years. And I see very clearly uh, in those 30 years that um, you know men and women both feel exactly the same way. And gay couples, it makes no difference whether you're straight or gay. It's um, gay couples feel exactly the same way. They do not feel heard about the things that are uh, that anything that they wish to say that involves criticism of their partner. As soon as the uh, partner hears criticism, she or he becomes defensive, and that defensiveness prevents makes it more and more so that people that the person with the potential criticism or concern uh, makes them feel like they're walking on eggshells, and so they eventually clam up and start keeping their feelings to themselves. And one day it comes out in an argument and the whole volcano of pent up feelings comes tumbling out and they do something that is, um, you know, like hit their partner or do something that is uh, they ultimately regret. But because nobody understands that the need to be heard is primary and that uh, that anger is a vulnerability. And the more you love somebody, the more vulnerable you feel to being left to being criticized by them or abandoned by them. And so the less well you listen, the more you love somebody and that that anger is often vulnerability's mask. You, you described what happened with the different media outlets and shows. I'm curious how it felt. Did you feel hurt or left out or misunderstood or angry? or I mean, you've kept going, so... I can't tell you that because men don't have feelings. <laughs> I'm pretty well they're just... She knows differently now. A little clip out of that. That was a joke. <laughs> Tied back into what um, Josh was saying a little while ago. Uh, but the yes, I, I had multiple feelings. Uh, one was certainly um, a disappointment that almost all the people I felt were really friends, uh, like Gloria Steinem, Betty Friedan, and you know many of the other less well-known uh, people in the feminist movement, uh, all of whom I considered friends. And they were basically my only friends. I didn't develop friends that weren't feminists in their orientation and male friends as well. They, when I started to begin to speak like this, they all distanced themselves from me. And so that felt the most painful. Uh, it certainly was painful to, you know, I went from 50 speaking engagements a year to down to zero to one in colleges and that you know, meant that I was you know, doing a very significant income uh, for my feminist years, the first three, four, five, ten years, and then went down to virtually nothing from speaking on feminist issues. That hurt. And that there, weren't, there were moments when you know, people just said to me, you, know, you are, you know, you're very positive and you're, you're loved in the feminist movement. Just be careful before you speak to think about what feminists will think of that. And that just didn't, that's not the way I wanted to live my life is to not worry about what was the most honest and the most true, but rather think about what somebody else would think of it. And so I made a decision that, you know, I would do the best I can to, you know, invest my money that I had made during the feminist movement and be able to live off of that and, um, and accept the fact that I was going to lose, you know, significant amounts of income, which was probably somewhere between eight and $12 million that, uh, that got lost in that transition process. And a lot of awards that I was in, in MacArthur Grant um, Genius Fellows 
as a finalist, um, just got dropped from that uh, competition as soon as it was heard that I was uh, explaining and empathizing with boys and men's issues. So there was a lot to think about if I were to say, oh, yes, I just went, you know, willy nilly, uh, you know, just went right for it without any doubts. Um, you know, there was, um, you know, because of the income, the respect that I was receiving as a male feminist people, you know, women constantly saying, how can we clone you? Um, I can't say that it was easy to give all that up, but I really just decided that um, I wanted to to be as honest as I could figure out how to be and uh, express it as gently and lovingly as I could and um, and felt that maybe um, I was in some way meant to be able to both first empathize with women um, so completely for five to 10 years like you did and then go and um, begin to um, articulate some of the things I was discovering from my men's group and some of the doors that that opened that people in my men's group hadn't explored because they didn't spend full time thinking about these issues. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I'm listening to you and thinking to what extent I want to be more vocal about these things myself because my main focus is sustainability and the environment. And that alone gets, I mean, I, don't, I haven't flown since 2016. I avoid packaged food, so I haven't, it takes me two years to fill up a load of garbage. And people keep calling me extreme. But to me, I mean, at first I was like extremely fun. Like it's, I'm not missing out on anything because I've made this shift. But also I think of it as the future. I, I think that we can't live the way you've been living and expect the earth to sustain, it can't sustain it. But also, is this the case with you? Isn't maybe not every single day, but almost every day, if I read the New York Times or if I read the Guardian, there's always something that it looks like it, it presents itself as for equality, but it's got that, it's, it misses it. And I could... Almost every day I could pick an article and write something from what I've picked up from reading your stuff and not just you, but lots of others. And I, I hold back from doing it because I think, well, that's not my issue. I don't want to make it my whole thing, but I'm, I'm kind of scared to write about this. Not scared in the sense of, I, you know, it could become a distraction from this other thing. I can't think of a way that I'd write some things that to me make total sense that at least one person wouldn't really oppose without even considering what I wrote. So I'm trying to decide, like, to what extent do I want to dive into it or not? Or do I just want to talk about it without diving into it? So that's what I'm thinking of as I'm, as, as I'm listening to you. Yes, I, I'd say that there are really two, you know, there, there are maybe three major um, issues that are really important to be put forth in the, in the, in the world at this point in time. Uh, one clearly is the importance of climate change. And for reasons that you know of um, better than I. Uh, number two is... Um, boys and men's issues because women and girls are also going to women and girls want capable men that are worthy of their love they want men who graduate who are educated they want men who are feel uh, empowered they want men who are functional and boys and men feel better about themselves when they are capable when they're functional when they're when they're able to achieve and, um, and be disciplined and boys and men are one of the reasons why boys and men commit suicide at so much higher rate than girls and why it increases with adolescence when boys and men are nine, uh, their suicide rate and girls' suicide rate is exactly the same. Um, but between the ages of 10 and 14, boys' suicide rate doubles. Between the ages of 15 and 19, boys' suicide rate compared to girls is four times that of girls. And between the ages of uh, 20 and 25, um, boys' suicide rate is more than five times that of girls. And this is just the beginning of 50, more than 50 developmental problems that are part of the boy crisis uh, that I talk about in the boy crisis book. And they're mostly problems that occur among the boys uh, that are dad deprived. When boys are not raised with a very involved father, 
uh, they are so much more vulnerable to the issues, the 50 developmental challenges that um, boys um, face who do not have uh, dads in their lives. Uh, by the way, girls face uh, a good many of these challenges as well, almost as many as the boys do, but not to the same level of intensity. Boy, girls are more likely to commit suicide without uh, dads, just not to the same level that I just described uh, as boys are. And so um, they, they, both sexes are likely to get overweight. Both sexes are likely to do worse in school. Both sexes are more likely to drop out. But boys are proportionally more likely to drop out. And when, and when boys drop out of high school, their unemployment rate during their uh, 20s before COVID, when the unemployment rate overall was 3.4%, uh, boys' unemployment rate who have dropped out of high school is more than 20% in their early 20s. And so um, they're more likely, 66% more likely to live in their parents' basement or at least live with their parents. And girls don't go looking, you know, on unemployment lines for parents, for boys that live in their parents' basement as their future fathers. Yeah. Uh, so these boys become, you know, not able to be married and oftentimes even able to be dating and uh, unless they're really good looking and tall. And then if they're really good looking and tall, ultimately the girl or woman leaves them for a guy that may not be quite as good looking, but is is more functional in the world. And so these are things that are really, um, you know, very sad for boys. So I was talking about three issues. That's the reason that the boy crisis is so important, um, not only for boys and for girls, but also for our economic future to be um, boys who don't produce our boys that hurt our overall economic productivity. And so there's multiple things. And the third thing is communication skills. And we should be teaching in first or second grade the ability to listen to, uh, to each other to uh, so the bully is able to hear how the person he just built bullied or she just bullied feels um, or the one that was the target of a mean girl feels. And also that the person who was bullied needs to understand the low self-esteem that the person who is the bully has and where the bully himself or herself was coming from. And you know where people who are opposed to global warming, uh, why they feel it's it's a it's a fake issue, uh, why they feel that, uh, vaccinations are a fake issue. Uh, we may not agree with them. I don't agree with them, but I need to hear where their best intent comes from, how they piece their world together. I need to be curious, openly, not being not planning my response while they're talking, um, but to ask them to search for every piece in the puzzle. Uh, that they have that has created their picture to approach their their differences like a detective who is looking for every piece in that puzzle until I have their view of the world as different from me as it must as it might be, and so this is the most important single. This everything is about communication, whether it's about the ability of a family to stay together, the ability to people in high school to not walk around with wounds that they have for the rest of their life because they were bullied or they were a bully. And then the ability of um, Republicans and Democrats to hear each other, Israelis and Arabs to hear each other. Uh, there's hardly a problem in the world that doesn't have a system problem um, communication, including um, global warming, where you know people can't, the people that start out with a difference just cannot hear the importance of, um, of making sure the planet um, doesn't um, hurt from climate change. I didn't start this way, but as I've done this podcast more and more, I'm a little over 500 episodes in, I'm realizing that like, I've had hardcore Trump supporters, staunch Republicans, military, and people that I think a lot of environmentalists consider adversaries or at best res resistance. And I think you... And I don't know if you know Jonathan Haidt. He's also been on this podcast. I've had minimal correspondence with him, but I, I like him very much. Yeah, his his books have really gotten me to ask the people I disagree with questions. And to that curiosity, at first it was really hard. Look, I'm no Dalai Lama here. But at first it was hard. But then as I got more answers, I'm learning so much. And not trying to win. Actually... It seems, in my experience, seems to open people up to listening more. Your books actually have a lot of this. I mean, you, you don't just say, here's a problem. You, you're pretty clear on, on here's what to do in this kind of situation. Here's how to prepare for these sorts of things. And it's at the individual reader level, but also here's what teachers can do. Here's what principals can do. Yeah, you do a lot of workshops. I'm, I'm really glad you noticed that. I, I literally make it a promise to myself 
when I wrote The Boy Crisis in particular, to not bring up any issue that I didn't have a solution to and try to address, okay, what solutions are there on the level of family? What can the mother do, the father do? What can the family do? How to create family dinner nights uh, so they don't become family dinner nightmares. How to structure them to make sure every person at the table is listened to. to. How to make them exciting. So if you're going to talk you know, with your kids about rape or sex or uh, anything, that there's no topic that's off the table uh, for your family. But the only thing that is off the table is not listening, is, is electronics, is uh, putting other people at the table down. Uh, so your family becomes a safe place to discuss anything and becomes a lot more exciting than your electronics as a result of that. And then second, on the school level, um, why we need to hire male teachers. Oh, and the family, to stay with the family level for a moment, um, you know, the what there is, what what do dads do? And there's a whole chapter in the Boy Crisis book on what the differences between dad-style parenting and mom-style parenting and why dads tend to do um, boundary enforcement more, why they tend to tease more, why they tend to roughhouse more. Uh, what is the connection between roughhousing and empathy? That's the most counterintuitive connection. But the um, the data shows that when fathers roughhouse the way they do, and mothers could do roughhousing also, and then they they and the way that dads often roughhouse is stopping the roughhousing when the children um, do not know the difference between being assertive and aggressive, and therefore they they stop the roughhousing what children really love. When they uh, you know, t- use an elbow to edge out their sister or brother uh, rather than winning fairly. Um, and so the children learn uh, social skills. They learn empathy. They learn the things that um, allow them to get um, along better with their classmates. And therefore, they're less likely to be depressed. They're more likely to be motivated. So those are some of the things on the family level. The importance of, of hiring, of having a, a male teacher corps where for schools to hire male teachers and what the importance of male teachers are, particularly for boys that grow up in um, mother-only families, for them to go from mother-only families to female-only schools. And then what, then we wonder why a, a gang leader is able to um, uh, seduce them into feeling that they're, uh, they'll be part of a family if they join the gang or they become in it unable to have the discipline to earn money. So they're very uh, responsive to a drug dealer who says, you can, you don't have to be disciplined to earn money. So all you have to do is take these drugs and run them here, run them there. And then on the policy level, the state level and the national level, I, I chair a coalition to create a White House Council on Boys and Men. And you know what, what can be done on, you know, uh, to confront, for example, President Biden creating a, a White House Gender Policy Council a gender policy council that includes only women and girls does not include males, does not include gay males, does not include black males. So it's really homophobic, racist, and sexist all at the same time. And virtually nobody is confronting that. And it's you know unconstitutional because the constitution requires equal protection of the laws as part of the 14th amendment um, for on both sexes. And very few people are um, challenging that. So all of those things I tried to incorporate in the boy crisis so that there was always multiple level solutions for every problem that was that boys are facing today. We're just about the limit of time. And I want to ask a couple more lighthearted questions, I guess. One of them is you have this knack for a turn of phrase where these things that rhyme or these things that have like alliteration. Do you work at that or does it happen like boys who hurt, hurt others. Yeah. And there's a lot of them. And do you do that on purpose? Is it just come naturally to you? Is it, is it a style that you, I'm kind of curious because I love them and it, some of them are corny. <laughs> uh, thank you. In, in, in brief, they are very purposeful, but here's the process I go through. Uh, first, I do a lot of, I get a sense of something that seems off. Then I start researching it to see whether I, whether I'm off or whether there is something that's really off. And like, you know, it seems to me like that the killing of blacks is not just a race issue, that it's much more likely to be the black male than the black female. So I might have that instinct from what I've just read here or there. So then I'll search it out and see whether in fact that's true. And it turns out to be a 24 to one ratio of males killed versus females killed. And then so... Um, and then I start beginning to see, well, okay, this is really 
um, not just a sex issue. It's a, a, not just a race issue. This is also a gender issue. And so then I'm saying, well, what will be missed here? Ah, uh, that the other half of black male is male. So I'll, I'll work and work at, at getting to the truth, then documenting the, the truth as best I can. Nobody has the, the truth. And then documenting it as well as I can. And then saying, okay, how can I get people to remember this very easily so that they have, in a way, a bumper sticker to work with um, because the bumper stick sticks in the mind. And then uh, rather than it just being a bumper sticker and going nowhere, all the the logic, the uh, the documentation and the implications are in the Boy Crisis book or in the Myth of Male Power book. And so so it's a very conscious journey. But it often, and then also making sure that the that the the quick uh, soundbite is very accurate. It is not accurate for a funny soundbite, but it really has multiple levels of accuracy that I can develop from it. Making me think. I don't know if you can see on my blackboard behind me are the words "systemic change begins with personal transformation," mm-hmm. which is very meaningful, but it's not a bumper sticker. It's not. It's not catchy. Mm-hmm. I've been working it to see if I could come up with something. If you ever come up with something, yeah. if, if that ever... Systemic change begins with personal change. Would be, begins with per, personal transformation. No, I understand. But you just said systemic oh. change begins with personal transformation, but it's it, but people are able to retain it better if you have the same word at the beginning of one type of... So if you say systemic change begins with personal change, then the thing that stands out as being differential, the differential of, of systemic versus personal, and that begins, people are able to remember that difference because the other two words are the same, change and change. Mm-hmm. So, um, but... Mine is like reeling now. Could it be that simple? Then also consider the opposite, that personal transformation or begins with systemic transformation systemic transformation begins with personal transformation and consider the opposite i'm saying is that uh that personal transformation begins with systemic transformation when you're born into a world in which everybody is thinking about um the climate and the importance of of having better water and having and doing good recycling and all the consciousnesses that you have when that becomes this the system you being born into it doesn't require personal change. The personal change is what you have as a result of the system having already changed. Thank you for walking me through this. I'm glad I asked now. I thought it was just going to be a, uh, I didn't, <laughs> My wife says, you know, I just said, I throw out something for fun and you end up with all this. <laughs> well, my, I mean, you know, I'm working on my next book and so it might be the title. Uh, like that systemic change begins with personal transformation. It was catchy. I would make that the title, but it's not catchy. And then suddenly a one word change or so. I'm, okay. Thank you. I'm going to keep playing with You're this. Welcome. I'll get back to you and let you know how it Go goes. Over the, the, that portion of this again. And, and then there's probably, there's a few layers to that, that, that probably are not caught quickly in the quick moving through it. So, um, I, and, and if you have a question about any of those layers, just drop me an email. Okay. And now I have one last question that if you have a second for one more question. Yeah, sure. This one came up by chance. I'm listening to music and John Lennon's Beautiful Boy comes on and Darling, 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 Sean. And I wondered if you listen to that and think you must listen to It's a beautiful, beautiful um, to me, it's a beautiful song. Yeah. It's, it's touching. It's, it's, it captures, I mean, I was a big Beatles fan, apparently more than you, because I would have recognized him. <laughs> for, for, the, for the listener. Yeah, John Lennon joined my men's group, and uh, right after I, I I started 300 some odd men's groups, as I mentioned before, and and I would start the groups, get them underway, and then I would leave and start other groups. And he joined a group that I had started, but it was right after I had left. And so he came up to thank me uh, for that group changing his life um, at some party. But I was so busy with my doctoral dissertation, my teaching at NYU, and doing a hundred other things, and writing my first book that I just didn't t- tap into TV. And so I had no idea who he was. And he spoke with me for you know more than an hour. And, and finally, somebody came up and asked for what I thought was going to be my autograph. And it turns out, of course, to be his autograph. And that's when I discovered that I was, you know, ultimately discovered that I was talking with John Lennon. And then I asked him, um, aren't you part of a singing group? 
<laughs> and he says to me, yes. I said, what's the name of the group? And he goes, the Beatles. Then I realized my level of ignorance was not quite that low. When you hear that song, does that song, is that something particularly meaningful to you? Do you feel like you helped make it possible? Yes, actually, I, that's true. Because the issue that John Lennon dealt with in the men's group was um, the fact that he had lost his um, former wife and lost contact with um, his, his uh, son. Uh, when um, his his son was born as a result of him being so preoccupied with his business. And at the time that the men's group started, um, Yoko Ono had been um, become pregnant and they found out it was going to be a boy. And he feared that he was going to repeat that whole cycle over again. And when, when the group persuaded him to check with Yoko, um, to see what Yoko Ono, to see whether she would be open to him taking time off to raise the, the to raise Sean, uh, she said yes, um, and th- then he protested to the group that he had you know, d- dozens of legal contracts that he couldn't break, and the group uh, persuaded him to ne- renegotiate some of the contracts, and by other companies he was sued, and instead of um, saying, I can't do that because I would be sued, he just did it, and then he spent five years raising his son, and so yes, I do feel some connection to that song. Uh, have, you, do you, have you met Sean? You- I have not met Sean. He, um, see, he, he connected with, somebody told him about me. Um, I had one back and forth with him by email some years ago, but it hasn't, it hasn't continued. And it was not, it was very friendly, um, you know, connection, but it was not, um, it, it just didn't pick up and continue. Yeah, Cause I know that at my end, a lot of the male friendships that I have are, are deeper and richer and, with more vulnerability than it would have been otherwise had I not gone through the myth of male power and all those things. And Josh, thank, thank you for that. That's really, I, I mentioned to you when you were saying something like that before the show started that, you know, that's um, 78 and I have enough money to retire, but um, that, you know, knowing that the impact of the boy crisis and the myth of male power and book and the couples courses um, are, have on people's lives. That's really what keeps me going. Why don't we close there with my, you're responding to my expression of gratitude. And, but also, I, I, please, I extend you an open invitation to return anytime that you'd like. I, I feel like there's a million things we could come up with, uh, continue on. And certainly the connection between the, your leadership, I, I'm going to use the word leadership, of, of going off into territory, uncharted territory, and sticking with it for a long time. And I hear great passion in you, undiminished from time is what I read. And I think there's a lot of people looking at the environment and feeling like, Hmm, I don't know. It seems kind of difficult and I think could learn from your experience. Well, thank you very much. I really, I, I feel from you um, enormous caring, enormous love, enormous being led by your heart. And, um, and I just so um, connect with and appreciate uh, that type of level of commitment. I think one of the reasons you appreciate me is because I remind you of you. Warren Farrell, thank you very much. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.